My name is Dan Cannon. I'm the Tongass Forest Program Manager at the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. SIAC, as we call it, is based in Juneau, Alaska on Aquan lands. Uh, and my work involves protecting the Tongass, which is the traditional homelands of the Klingit, Haida, and Shimshan. So today we'll be talking about the Tongass National Forest and the roadless rule, which forbids road construction and industry in areas of the U.S. National Forest in order to preserve those areas. Did I get that about right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a federal safeguard that restricts logging and road building on roughly 58 million acres of National Forest Service lands. And Specifically here in Southeast Alaska, 9.3 million acres of the Tongass National Forest. So for people who might be unfamiliar with the Tongass National Forest, how would you describe it? Oh, the Tongass is beautiful. Uh, the Tongass is our backyard. It spans across the entire southeastern panhandle of the state. It's 17 million acres it's the largest national forest, and it's a rich landscape. It's a wonderland of glacier-carved fjords, a thick green forest of old-growth hemlock, spruce, and cedar, spongy carpets of muskeg, expansive fields of rock and glaciers. Uh, it's truly a sight to see, and, and that's why millions of visitors come here every year. What kind of animals and plants live in the Tongass? Yeah, so... The Tongass is home to all five species of Western salmon. Uh, it's home to black and brown bears. Uh, it's home to lots of bald eagles, goshawks. It's home to Sitka black-tailed deer, um, moose, all the fun woodland creatures, even down to the small ones, like there's flying squirrels on the Tongass. Um, and then in terms of plants, you know, you have 800-year-old old-growth trees that are just incredible to see. You have uh, hillsides full of devil's club, which is definitely something you don't want to hike through. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just this very lush, dense forest. It, it, it is the rainforest. So when you hike through it, it feels very wet and the ground is often muddy or spongy and uh, just overrun with biomass. It's it's it almost looks carpeted at times so it's it's really a sight to see if and or when the forest opens up to industry what will happen to those animals will they just move to other parts of the forest well so uh, so the the world is real protects 9.3 million acres uh, and if those protections are lifted uh, what will happen is essentially those acres will now be potentially available to logging roads and logging. Uh, and as we are aware, the preferred way of logging on the Tongass is clear cut. Um, and the prized uh, type of timber on the forest is old growth. And the science shows that old habitat is crucial for um, you know the Alexander Archipelago wolf, or crucial for the Sitka black-tailed deer, or crucial for bears, and then it's also crucial for ensuring salmon have 
the critical spawning streams they need. Um, so if you start uh, developing and logging these areas, you're not only impacting the wildlife, you're impacting the entire region's economy, you're impacting the, the lifestyle of Alaskans. Uh, you know, a lot of Alaskans depend on that key uh, old growth habitat that is as critical for this wildlife to fill their freezers with salmon and deer for, for the, the winter. Uh, so I think what happens is, you know, the wildlife has less options in terms of the best places for them to live. So, you know, you could say, oh, they can just go to other parts of the forest. The forest is 17 million acres. But the science shows that the areas that want, that the timber industry wants to develop most are the most productive areas and the best areas for key wildlife species and, and, and key salmon species. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that the areas that are being targeted are the areas with the highest productivity with with animals. So yeah, so I mean just a just a little history here. So over 1 million acres of the forest has been harvested um, since 1950. Um, and not all of that is on forest service land. That's that's roughly 50% national forest service land and the other 50 is on private lands. In addition to 1 million acres of forest being cut, uh, you're looking at oh, nearly nearly 10,000 miles of roads have been constructed. Um, and you have to recognize that logging in the Tongass is very expensive. So the timber industry went after the biggest and best and most accessible. Uh, so, you know, when you talk about a million acres have been cut, you're looking at a timber industry that targeted, you know, areas that were, weren't steep. Uh, you're looking at, they targeted the largest trees, the oldest trees, which produce the best habitat for like winter range habitat for deer, for example. So, so you have to really kind of understand the history to understand, well, why are these areas being targeted? And you have to understand the region, like the old growth is being targeted because that's where the money is. And, and you have to understand that, you know, you have to look at even the karst, like uh, Prince of Wales is a heavily karsted uh, island. And we know that karst drains well. And in a rainforest, uh, you have a lot of rain and trees don't necessarily uh, grow very well when they're oversaturated, just like your houseplants. You know, you don't want to overwater your houseplants. Mm -hmm. So when the soils, when the karst soils are draining very well, that's where you get some of the biggest trees. And then on as well on karst soils, you know, they're not usually steep hillsides. And timber companies don't want to log steep hillsides. They want to log somewhere where they can easily access as much of the timber as they as as they need or want. So the remaining old growth that is left on the Tongass, um, that's what we're worried about, right? Is because that's what the timber industry is gonna is gonna go after. They're gonna go after the largest and most accessible. And that happens to be kind of the prime old growth habitat as well. 
And, you know, I'm happy to give a little bit. I don't know how much you want me to talk about, like the history of logging on the Tongass or. Yeah, no, I think I think you should definitely get into it. Let's talk about it. All right. I mean, so like I said, there's been logging since the 1950s. And, uh, you know, I already mentioned this, but it's expensive. There's steep terrain, um, which causes access issues. There's poor soil. So I, I mentioned how saturated the soils are. And, you know, muskag is kind of a, a type of it's not a swamp. Uh, but it's definitely a type of like boggy uh, kind of area. And so that soil isn't best for road building. So road building is very expensive on the Tongass. Additionally, you have high labor costs. You have a lot of investment to get people to Southeast Alaska in the first place. And then uh, getting them out on the forest isn't cheap. So you have additional higher labor costs. And then Southeast Alaska is remote. Um, there's a reason why you can't get here by road, uh, so you have to fly or, or take a, a boat. And so as a result, your distance from markets is going to only increase the cost for, for uh, the, the timber here. And then generally speaking, timber markets have changed since the 1950s. So, you know, and I've already mentioned this, but the, the biggest, most successful and most valuable timber has been cut. So because of these kind of economic reasons, the timber industry has been heavily subsidized over the years uh, during the pulp mill days, uh, which a lot of people in Southeast class refer to, oh, the pulp mill days, you know, and that they're usually referencing the Sitka pulp mill or the pulp mill in Ketchikan, which ran, the Sitka pulp mill ran from 1953 to 1993, and the Ketchikan pulp mill was opened from 1954 to 1997. And these pulp mills were heavily subsidized, uh, where the federal federal timber was sold to those local processors at below market prices. Um, and as those subsidies began to close and the pulp mills began to close the timber industry, you know, at the end of the pulp mill era, the timber industry accounted for roughly like 6% of Southeast Alaskan jobs. And, you know, once the Roldis rule was passed in 2001, many of those subsidies had been removed. Um, and as the timber industry declined, the Forest Service, um, instead of subsidizing, they now allow for more exports. Up to 50% of old growth logs can be exported. So now you're seeing a decline to, uh, in 2001, the, the timber industry jobs declined to about 3%. And today, you know, the, the timber industry is about 0.5% of, of the um, jobs in Southeast Alaska. And the Forest Service reported that in 2018, there was 193 timber jobs. So I think there's this often idea that timber is a big economic contributor to Southeast Alaska's regional economy. And yes, maybe in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, I'll give you even to the early 90s, but that was three decades ago at this point. And really the economy has shifted and you know, tourism has really um, taken a big step forward and, and being an economic driver. And as it always has been, the, the commercial fishing industry is also a major economic driver. So you have kind of this long history of, of timber economics that have kind of faded away since, you know, the early 2000s or the late 90s, I should say. And this idea that it can be come back or that it should be invested in is just, uh, just doesn't make sense. Uh, it's not economical. And it's just very unlikely to happen. So what do you think is perpetuating this idea of 
timber's importance to Southeast Alaska? You know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's definitely part of Southeast Alaska's history. Right. And I think a lot of people haven't moved on and accepted that that era is over. And I think some of those people that haven't moved on are politicians. And I specifically think of, you know, uh, the Murkowski family. Frank Murkowski was a senator and a governor, and he grew up in Ketchikan during the pulp mill eras and fought very hard to keep the timber industry alive when while he was in office. And I think that sentiment has been passed down to his daughter, uh, now Senator Lisa Murkowski. So I think it's almost this like uh, false narrative that is perpetuated by our Alaska leadership, uh, which is, is, is really unfortunate because in terms of, you know, I didn't even really touch on the, the, the cost to taxpayers. You know, in the fiscal year 2019, the U.S. Forest Service lost $16.1 million of taxpayer money. And uh, since fiscal year 1980, the U.S. Forest Service has lost $1.7 billion or $44 million per year on average uh, due to the Tongass timber industry. So this is, this is a money losing industry for the country as a whole. And it's a false narrative that is being perpetuated here locally. Uh, and our Alaska delegation seems to struggle to move forward and accept the um, current economic lay of the land. So logging in Southeast Alaska, logging in the Tongass is actually losing money, not bringing in money. For the U.S. Uh, taxpayer, yes. Um, you know, obviously there was a timber industry for a long time that made some money, but that, you know, references kind of these federal subsidies or these export exemptions that are allowed. Um, but yeah, generally for the U.S. taxpayer, these are absolutely money losing timber sales. Um, and those numbers are coming from taxpayers for common sense who recently re released a report it's and they're an independent nonpartisan fiscal policy group and their predictions are is the u.s forest could end up losing nearly 190 million dollars in the tongas over the next five years from currently planned timber sales and more if uh roadless uh, areas are open to logging so it kind of sounds like we're talking about long-term versus short-term so in the short-term it may look like money's coming in from logging, but in the long term, we're seeing kind of the detrimental effects. Right. And, you know, and that's just talking economics. I mean, we also have to talk about, um, you know, the people that live here. And, you know, I already mentioned this, but, you know, Alaskans have come to to depend on on these areas that are protected by the real rule to to hunt and, and to to fish. And so, so you're not just hurting, you know, the U.S. taxpayers' pockets. You're you're hurting the livelihoods of Alaskans and the ability to put food on on the table for their families. Could opening up the Tongass affect anything outside its immediate environment, or, or maybe what, if any, are the larger environmental concerns? Yeah, so obviously we're very aware that the um, 
climate crisis is here, and we're witnessing that as as we've seen uh, just this year, the, the very intense hurricane season, uh, the wildfires that the West is experience, experiencing. Um, here in Alaska, we're definitely on the front lines of climate change. As you know, as as we've seen, communities um, up north having to relo- relocate because of thawing uh, permafrost. Um, so, so climate change is obviously a huge consideration. And when, when we consider the uh, developing the Tongass, you, you have to remember the Tongass acts as a carbon life raft. It, it, it's, it's a sponge. It, it absorbs carbon. It, it's meant to do that. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a champion at absorbing carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it stores more carbon than any other national forest. So when we start thinking about, okay, if we develop the Tongass, we are putting at risk this huge natural system that um, without doing anything in terms of development or technology is helping us combat climate change in terms of just storing that carbon and making sure that carbon isn't released into the atmosphere. Uh, And releasing that carbon is only going to exacerbate the climate crisis. Um, So, you know, when scientists are looking at climate change as such a, a global issue, they definitely look to, okay, well, where are these critical carbon sinks around the world? And the Tongass happens to be one. And so, so the more we develop and clear cut the Tongass um, or disturbed the, the soils that are also, you know, when people think of storing carbon, they often just think of trees, but also, you have to consider just the, the, the amount of biomass and, so, and the uh, carbon-rich soils here in the Tongass. Um, so when you disturb the soils for, for logging road building, and when you're clear-cutting these trees, you're releasing that carbon into the atmosphere, and you're um, reducing a critical carbon sink uh, in terms of the carbon cycle for the globe. What are the some of the global concerns with the elevated carbon emissions that could come from logging in the Tongass? I might not be able to give you your answer. I'm definitely not a climate scientist, so I can't get into kind of the hardcore science. I just, I just know that international panel IPCC, you know, in the report, they, talk about critical climate sinks and the Tongass is specifically mentioned. And uh, when we think about addressing our carbon emissions and and reducing the worst impacts of the climate crisis, um, we have to consider natural solutions. And one of those natural solutions is keeping the Tongass standing, right? Uh, And it's just a simple, easy, natural solution. And if we decide not to do that, we're only going to exacerbate the problem. Is your job or the job of your organization, SEAC, does it concern coming up with alternatives to logging at all? Or is your job just to protect the Tongass? So SEAC for 50 years has worked to protect the Tongass from you know, old growth clear cut logging and unnecessary road building. Um, We're definitely more of a policy and advocacy organization. So we are fairly political. That said, you know, when we're advocating against 
uh, industrial scale, old growth, clear cut logging on the Tongass, you know, as a result, we're usually uh, in return advocating for ensuring that our salmon um, populations are protected and strong because as a result, the streams will be protected. We're constantly pushing the Forest Service to consider instead of a timber industry here, what does it look like to bring a restoration industry here? There's, uh, like I said, over a million acres of the Tongass has been logged. There's a lot of restoration work that needs to be done. Culverts need to be put in place. Uh, there's, you know, just on the Tongass alone, there's $68 million of maintenance backlog on the roads, just the roads alone. Uh, so there's a ton of restoration work that can be done, and that's an economy within itself. Not to mention, we're constantly pushing and, and ensuring the voices of uh, the tourism economy uh, is heard, ensuring that recreation is prioritized and um, that uh, these small family-owned businesses that cater to the over a million tourists that come here every year have a forest to to recreate in, play in. You know, they don't come here to see clear cuts. They come here to see bears. They come here to see you know, mountains covered in old growth forest. Um, so we don't necessarily institute any local like development projects of our own, if that's what you're asking. But we definitely do uh, push the Forest Service to think about a recreation and restoration economy on the forest. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You know, what what I interpreted from that was that you guys are advocating existing alternatives, you know, like restoration and tourism, things that are already in place, things that you don't need to, you know, throw a bunch of money at to begin it, to start the process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think that's why we're, you know, it's a lot of Southeast Alaskans are really struggling with the state's constant desire to remove wilderness rule protections just because of how the economy has shifted and and how those protections actually are supporting you know 26 percent of the jobs come from commercial fishing and the tourism industry here in southeast alaska and so you know if i was a political leader i'm i'm not a gambler but if someone were to say would you want to bet on less than one percent of your economy or bet on 26 percent of your economy in this policy decision you're about to be about to make, I would definitely bet on the 26% and not the less than 1%. And I think that's what a lot of Southeast Alaskans are struggling with is the state and our Alaska delegation seem so unwilling to listen to their own constituents. Uh, and they're so unwilling to recognize and acknowledge the current economic playing field that Southeast Alaska is in. Uh, and they're willing to sell out 26% of our economy for less than 1% of our economy. How would you describe the the local attitude toward exempting the Tongass from the protection of the roadless rule? Yeah. So the Alaska roadless rule uh, final environmental impact statement came out last Friday. And the recommendation was to remove the roadless rule protections completely. So the full exemption alternative, which was alternative six, um, there was massive opposition to the full exemption from the beginning. 
and I can give you kind of a rundown of the history if you want of the Alaska Wilderness Rule, but the scoping comment period, because the, the because it's a, a federal rulemaking, they had to go through the National Environmental Policy Act process, which includes a scoping process, a draft environmental impact statement, a final environmental impact statement, and a record of decision. But throughout that process, the public gets to weigh in. So the scoping period, over 144,000 people commented. And the Forest Service reported that over 90% of those co public comments were in favor of keeping wilderness rule protections on the Tongass. So keeping the existing protection on the Tongass. Mm -hmm. When the draft environmental impact statement came out and the preferred alternative was the full exemption, you had over a quarter of a million people commented. And 96% of those public comments were in opposition to that preferred alternative and were in favor of, again, keeping the current wilderness rule protections. And you know, a lot of our Alaska leadership will say, well, those aren't Alaskans. But the, the thing is, those are Alaskans. Um, specifically, you know, during the draft environmental impact statement, 200 Southeast Alaskan commercial fishermen signed a letter in support of keeping the current wilderness rule protections. Six tribal govern governments passed resolutions opposing the full exemption. Um, six communities here in Southeast Alaska passed city council resolutions in support of keeping roadless rule protections on the Tongass. Uh, you know, you had four local fish and game advisory committees um, pass resolutions in favor of keeping roadless rule protections. You had these public hearings, the Forest Service for the draft environmental impact statement actually held public hearings all around Southeast Alaska. And at those public hearings, you can read the, um, the local news stories crowds of people, I think here in Juneau, over 200 people turned out to that public meeting. And they were vastly in favor of keeping roadless rule protection on the Tongass. And additionally to the public meetings, they also had subsistence hearings. So where uh, subsistence users, those are people that uh, hunt, fish, forage, who depend on the Tongass to, to feed and provide for their families, uh, the, at those 18 subsistence hearings, nearly 200 subsistence users got up and testified, and a large majority of those subsistence users testified in support of keeping roadless rule protections. And those subsistence users, those are Alaskans. Those, if I, I would argue those are the, 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 uh, the most Alaskan you can get is someone who depends on the land to, to provide for your family. Um, so the opposition to changing the roadless rule protections has, has been overwhelming, and, and the support from Alaskans uh, for keeping wilderness root protections is is not just your tree hugging hippies. Uh, you know, one group of people I didn't really include was tourism operators. A lot of tourism uh, tourism operators also spoke up and said, "Listen, this is this is how I make my living. This is people don't come here to see clear cuts. They come here to see an intact old growth temperate rainforest with 800 year old Sitka spruces uh, with." bears feeding from healthy salmon streams. Uh, so Alaskans have spoken out and it's just unfortunate that our Alaska delegation is, is refusing to listen to their constituents. Mm -hmm. So the other day in an email, I asked if you had anything you'd like to talk about and you said that you think it's important to talk about the public process and how the Forest Service, Secretary Purdue, Governor Dunleavy and the Alaska delegation generally ignored the overwhelming opposition 
to exempting the Tongass from 2001 roadless rule protection from the public and specifically Alaskans. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, I just kind of laid out who spoke up. And I think part of that is is a lot of the tribal governments here in Southeast Alaska have spoken out. And along with speaking out in support of kind of keeping roadless rule protection on the Tongass, they've raised concerns with just the process. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service brought six tribal governments into the rulemaking process as cooperating agents, which is a good thing. And we want to see that happen more often. But unfortunately, bringing those tribal governments and just to be clear, I, I don't speak for the tribes. I'm only kind of saying what the tribes have said themselves and have put out in the public media. But the tribes have raised concerns um, regarding that public process in terms of feeling like their input on the rulemaking process was ignored, requests for in-person meetings was ignored, uh, or they were, those meeting requests were uh, with, you know, the highest government official, which in this case would be Secretary Purdue, were pushed down to the undersecretary, feeling like the rule has been fast-tracked uh, and arbitrary deadlines were set, um, you know, I believe nine, yeah, it's nine tribal governments, when the global pandemic COVID-19 hit, nine tribal governments sent a letter to Secretary Purdue asking him to pause the world, this rulemaking process, as a global pandemic is going to disproportionately hurt Alaska Native communities, and they still move forward with the process. And it's gotten to the point from, you know, some of these tribal governments in Southeast Alaska, it's gotten to the point where they've had enough. And in July, tribal organizations filed their own petition asking for a traditional homeland conservation rule, uh, which would create a mechanism to involve um, those 11 tribes in the conservation and management of their ancestral lands here on the Tongass National Forest. Um, so I can't imagine being invited to a public process, but feeling feeling that process is so inadequate that at the end of it, you're filing your own uh, petition for your uh, a separate rulemaking process. And that's 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 one example. On top of that, you have the state of Alaska who, you know, we know from the long history of the Rildis rule has fought the Rildis rule tooth and nail. They they received two million dollars from the Forest Service. They they requested to uh, use a federal forest fire assistance grant to work on the rule as a cooperating agent. The state of Alaska was also a cooperating agent for the rulemaking rule process. And so they requested to shift that money away from that forest fire assistance grant and be able to use that money to work on the rule as a cooperating agent, which that's fine. That's if that's how the state wants to use that federal grant and the US Forest Service agrees that that's an acceptable way to use that grant, that's fine. But while that was happening, the six tribal governments that were that were also cooperating agents, they didn't receive any money uh, from either the state or from the federal government to work as cooperating agents. Um, and then as time went on, some of those funds that the state received uh, they actually gave to the Alaska Forest Association to assist the state in reviewing the Alaska Rule This Rule, and it was around, I believe, two hundred thousand dollars. 
so upon this news, you know, you had uh, a senator from Michigan, Debbie Savinaugh, and a representative uh, from Arizona, a representative Grijalva, looked at this situation and said, this is, this is, this should have not happened. Um, you know, they asked the USDA inspector general to actually, they requested an investigation. And currently that, that fund, those funds are being investigated by the USDA's inspector general um, to, to understand if the U.S. Forest Service had proper authority to award the $2 million to the state, to determine if those funds were used properly and for allowable purposes by by the state of Alaska, specifically in reference to the Alaska Forest Association receiving some of that money, and determine if other stakeholders, in this case, the six tribal governments that were also cooperating agents, were aware that federal funding was potentially available to work on work on this process. So as this rulemaking process was, was developing, you kind of, again and again, you would see these kind of controversies come up. And most recently, SIAC was able to uh, file a Freedom of Information Act request, which allows us to um, see, uh, allows the public to access government documents, uh, you know, with, there, there's a lot of rules and restrictions, but the, the FOIA allows us to do that. So we, we requested some information and we found emails between a lobby firm representing the Alaska Forest Association and that lobby firm was able to get a meeting between Governor Dunleavy, the former executive director of the Alaska Forest Association, and, and that lobbyist with Secretary Purdue to discuss the Alaska rule, this rule. And again, I'll, I mentioned this, but meanwhile, the tribal governments, when they requested meetings with Secretary Purdue, who's the ultimate decision maker, uh, they were pushed down to the undersecretary. So, you know, you have this almost injustice uh, that's taking place and, um, you know, financial injustice in the terms of the misuse of the potential misuse of this federal funding, this access of certain, um, you know, timber industry having direct access to the decision maker uh, when tribal governments aren't having access, a process that initially did a good job of trying to include tribal governments, but um, failed to move that process forward in a way that was just and uh, listen to those those tribal governments. Um, and then lastly, you know, the Washington Post um, showed that Governor Dunleavy and President Trump had a meeting on Air Force One. And during that meeting, they discussed the world this rule. And we believe that it was there that Governor Dunleavy made it very clear to President Trump that uh, the preferred alternative should be the full exemption to remove roadless rule protections from the Tongas completely. And, you know, a couple months later, we saw the draft environmental impact statement come out. And what do you know? The preferred alternative was the full exemption. So not any of the alternatives in the middle, but the full exemption. So as this process has taken place over the last two years, you just have seen again and again, these controversies come up all the while Alaskan voices are 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 not being heard by their own political leaders. Do you think this all of this could set a precedent for opening up more protected land in Alaska? So I think this specific case, the Alaska Rule this rule, 
doesn't necessarily set a precedent for opening more land in Alaska, but I think it does set a precedent for potentially opening more roadless areas in the lower 48 and other states. I think a lot of states are watching this process take place and are interested to see, okay, well, if if Alaska was able to remove their roadless rule protections, are we able to do that? And a state that I think is watching very closely is Utah. You know, very similar to Alaska, the Utah delegation is is um, not necessarily happy with the roadless rule and uh, doesn't always listen to their constituents who also have a very strong recreation economy in, in the state of Utah and uh, have are watching very closely. So for me, it's less about this sets precedent for opening more lands in Alaska versus this sets a precedent for other states potentially following suit and and moving forward with ex- full exemptions on, on roadless areas in, in their own states. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of conversations are you having with your colleagues um, surrounding this issue? You know, so... Uh, so I've worked at SEAC for two years, but I work with colleagues, you know, at my organization, but in the broader conservation community here in Alaska that have been fighting the same fight since 2001. So I think the conversations are often about exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, that, you know, just feeling exhausted. And, and generally, you'll see that same sentiment from Southeast Alaskans. When you go to these public meetings and you uh, have people stand up and said, if I had a dollar for every roadless rule public meeting I went to, I'd be rich, you know, uh, and, and those people aren't joking. <laughs> this is just, it, this, it won't go away. The state kind of refuses to accept it, even though they've lost in court, even though the economy has shifted drastically and to show that this, these protections are actually incredibly beneficial. Um, so I think it's a lot of exhaustion. I think uh, it's confusion as well. It's like we have the economics, we have the voices, um, we have the facts and the data, and so it's it's confusion on on why our political leaders are still continuing to move this forward. Um, we we really don't understand their reasoning, and and even their their own reasoning is like, well, we want development opportunities, but the rule. The rule is so well designed. Um, in Alaska alone, there's been 57 exemptions of projects that have been allowed to be built in roadless areas. Exemptions for mining, exemptions for roads, personal tree cutting, exemptions for inner ties, potential exemptions for hydroelectricity development, geothermal leases, uh, you name it. Uh, and all 57 requests for projects on roadless areas in the Tongass or in Alaska have been approved. So when politicians say this this rule is hindering development, that is also not true. So I think it's it's a vast amount of confusion because um, we we really just don't understand what is what is the motivation behind their desire to remove these protections. Yeah, it seems like there must be moments when you and your colleagues are kind of sitting around like we have the data, we have you know, the historical precedent, we have all of this stuff, like what else do we need? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of shoulder shrugging <laughs> at this point, you know? Mm-hmm. So why, why should the average person care about the Tongass National Forest? Yeah, well, 
One, if you eat salmon, you should care about the Tongass because 25% of West Coast salmon consumed comes from the Tongass National Forest. Uh, two, if you want to see the Earth's largest remaining intact temperate rainforest, which I strongly encourage anyone listening to come and visit. It, the, the forest is just a wonderful place. Um, you should care. Uh, and future generations deserve to also see this incredible, unique, intact ecosystem. Um, three, you know, we talked about this, but the climate crisis. We literally have to do nothing. We just have to leave it the way it is. And it is helping to combat the worst impacts of the climate crisis. So if you're concerned about climate change, leaving the Tongass intact and ensuring old growth, industrial scale, clear cut logging doesn't happen on the Tongass is in your own interest uh, in terms of protecting uh, the globe from, from the worst impacts of the climate crisis. For if you're, if you're a hiker, if you're a mountain biker, if you're a fly fisherman, if you're a hunter, this is one of the best places to come and recreate. And there's no place like this. World-class hiking, uh, world-class hunting and fishing. Uh, and so if you're looking for an adventure, this is the place to come. So I think those are kind of the driving factors why, you know, the average person should should care. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan, that that does it for my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I just, you know, I, I don't know if you want, I, I feel like we didn't, I didn't give as much and maybe you don't need it, but because you're going to do it, but I, you know, wanted to see if you wanted to give me a little, wanted a little bit more context of the, how we got here. Um, I gave kind of context of the logging, but I didn't really talk about how we came to Alaska rule, rule this rule happening and like the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's get into it for sure. How did it happen? How did we get to where we are now? Yeah, so in 2001, the Clinton administration passed the roadless rule, and it wasn't just a conservation effort. It was also an economic decision in terms that the Forest Service has a billions of dollars in maintenance backlogs on existing infrastructure and roads. So the idea was, well, we can protect clean water for 60 million Americans. We can protect key wildlife habitat for critical species across the country, and we can make sure we're saving money by not spending more money on building more roads and start working on the um, deferred maintenance backlog that that we have. Uh, so it was it was an economic decision just as much as it was a conservation decision. So when it was passed, the Alaska political leadership was not happy, even though the 2001 Alaska Roadless Rule process was one of the most significant public processes. It, over 1.5 million people commented on, on the process. Um, there were hundreds of meetings all across the country. Um, so the state of Alaska fought it immediately and you know, with lawsuits, uh, and there's a long legal history of the state of Alaska fighting the roadless rule on the Tongass. And actually from 2003, the in 2003, the Bush administration actually exempted the Tongass from the roadless rule. So that exemption lasted until 2011. And then that was overturned. And then again, it was exempted briefly from 2014 to 2015, when in 2016, the Supreme Court declined to hear 
a final challenge. And that meant that a 2015 ruling in the Ninth Circuit Court stood. So this battle has been uh, in the courts since day one, essentially. And after losing in courts with the Supreme Court not hearing it and allowing the Ninth Circuit Court ruling to stand that the the worldest rule will remain on the Tongass, the state of Alaska looked for other alternatives. And in 2016, when what they perceived as a potential friendly administration came into office, um, the governor uh, filed a petition for Alaska-specific worldest rule. And in April of 2018, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue accepted that petition. And when he accepted that petition for an Alaska-specific worldest rule, that's what kicked off the Forest Service to start this um, Alaska wilderness rulemaking process that we've now been in since um, August of 2018, when the scoping period began. So in August of 2018, the scoping period began, and that was the start of the National Environmental Policy Act rulemaking process. And that's what led to the the process that we're currently in. And that's what led to the draft environmental impact statement. Um, which that began in October of 2019, and of course uh, chose the preferred alternative of full exemption. And then that led to where we are today, where last Friday on September 25th, the final environmental impact statement came out for the Alaska Wilderness Rule, again, with the preferred alternative being a full exemption. Um, So now where we're at is the Secretary of Agriculture must wait at least 30 days before releasing his uh, record of decision. So that's kind of like the timeline and kind of where how we got here. So it sounds like historically there has been a group of politicians that have just constantly had their eyes on opening up the Tongass. Yeah. And it seems like you and your colleagues' position and a multitude of other groups have basically been trying to keep what's already put in place kept in place. Yeah, definitely. We've we've been playing defense since day one, <laughs> since this was passed. And we being not just the conservation community, but Alaska natives, uh, small tourism operators, commercial fishermen, basically Southeast Alaskans have been playing defense since day one. And I think that's what's so frustrating. And that's why people are so just overwhelmed. Uh, this is, this is, and I mentioned this earlier, but just exhausted. People were just exhausted because they've been, they've been fighting this fight for 20 years. So in the beginning of this conversation, I had, um, to be completely honest with you, I had very little knowledge of a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. Maybe if you were to leave me with a sentiment about the Tongass and how important this issue is to you, to someone like myself who has little knowledge outside of our conversation here, what would it be? Hmm. I think the sentiment is that Southeast Alaskans are being ignored and the roadless rule protections are working for Southeast Alaskans and overwhelmingly Southeast Alaskans and the general public have said that these protections are important and should remain in place. And 
for 50 years, SIAC has worked to combat industrial scale old growth clear cut logging on the Tongass National Forest. And we're committed to doing whatever it takes to ensure these protections remain in place. And we fight for and listen to the overwhelming support from the public and Southeast Alaskans. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thanks to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.